The following sermon is by Dr. Josh Scally, pastor of Emanuel Baptist Church in Raleigh, North Carolina. Please visit us at 2100 Noble Road in Raleigh or on the web at ebcraleigh.com. And now, here's Pastor Josh. The book of Exodus has been answering the question, who is the Lord, and showing us chapter by chapter how great the Lord is. It showed us his greatness, that he is above all gods as he worked mighty plagues, especially the first nine. But the tenth perhaps showed us even more clearly his goodness, as the tenth plague, through the blood of the Lamb, graciously delivered and saved any who would trust in the Lamb. The Lord delivers because that's who he is. He's a gracious deliverer. But in today's passage, Exodus 13 through 14, we find that the people who passed through the blood of the Lamb and whose sins were passed over, are now on their way out of Egypt, but they face their first real threat. They have the chariots bearing down on them, which would have been like tanks almost for that era. They're facing the Red Sea, which is impassable, and they panic. In that panic, they feel powerless. They make a fundamental error. Rather than looking above to Yahweh, who's brought them this far, They look within to their ability. This is a pernicious struggle for us all because we live in the era of secularism. And whether or not we think of ourselves as secular, we live in a secular age. And one of the key beliefs of secularism is that our only hope is within. In fact, one author put it very starkly. This is Somerset Maugham who wrote this. Because there's nothing outside of us, death ends all. So I have no hope for good to come, nor fear for evil. So I have to ask myself, what what am I here for? How in these circumstances should I conduct myself? Now the answer to one of these questions is plain, he writes. But it is so unpalatable, most men will not face it. Here's the answer, according to Somerset Maugham. There is no reason for living, and life has no meaning. We're here inhabitants of a small planet revolving around a minor star... The planet will eventually reach a condition where living things can no longer exist, and at long last the universe will attain equilibrium and nothing more will happen. Eons and eons before this man will disappear. Why would I then suppose that it matters that I ever existed? I will have been a chapter in the history of the universe as pointless as the chapter written in the stories of strange creatures that inhabited the primeval earth. I appreciate his candor even though he's sadly, woefully mistaken. Now, perhaps this morning you didn't come in here thinking of yourself as following the worldview of secularism, but because we live in a secular age, even we who've seen God do great and mighty things when facing a powerless situation may look within and, like them, panic and say, well, there's no help, there's no point, and there's no hope. But this morning, I want to remind you that when we feel that we're not in control and that we feel that we're not able, we need to remember who God is. See, here they are on the other side of Egypt getting ready to leave, and they've seen God's power. But I think maybe more accurately, the question is, but is God really for us? Does he really love me? And will he finish what he started? Let me tell you this this morning, brothers and sisters, the Lord always finishes the salvation he has begun. The Lord loves to the end eternally. The Lord will not 
abandon us. So this morning, we have titled today's sermon, I've titled it, Salvation is from the Lord, or Salvation is of the Lord, because that is a quotation of what we read in Exodus 14, verse 13. If you have a pew Bible, it's page 65 and 66. If you have your Bible, it's Exodus 13. We're going to be in verses 17 and following, and then chapter 14. Three reminders about God to you this morning. If you have the bulletin, they're in front of you. Number one, the Lord leads his people. Number two, the Lord fights for his people. And number three, the Lord saves his people. And he does this all of grace. So number one, the Lord leads his people. Look in Exodus 13, verse 17. And the Lord is going to choose the best path for his people. And he still does that. Verse 17, when Pharaoh let the people go, God did not lead them by way of the land of the Philistines, although that was near. That was the shorter path. God did not lead them on the shorter path. For God said, lest the people change their minds when they see war and return to Egypt. But God instead led the people around by the way of the wilderness toward the sea. And the people of Israel went up out of the land of Egypt, equipped for battle. we read in verse 18. We'll explain verse 18 in a second. I just want you to notice in verse 17, God is not leading them in the short path. He's intentionally leading them in the long path. God still leads us in the paths that he knows are best, even when we wonder how they could be. In fact, that is the nature of trust in the Lord. Scripture tells us trust in the Lord with all your heart. Do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and he'll what? Direct your paths, right? In his providential hand, it's not always the shortest path, but it's always the best path. Why did he not take them on the shortest path here? Well, first, he's preserving them because we just read that the Philistines would have been too much for them at this time. At some point, they will have to face them, but they're not ready today. Aren't you glad God knows when we're ready for what we can face? There's a second reason, though. God has led them on purpose so that they're standing at this massive Red Sea. God has led them where they would be powerless. God leads us where we are powerless so that he can show us where the power comes from. God is so good that just like he told Moses when Moses said, I'm not of speech, and he said, who made man's mouth? So they're going to be panicking at the Red Sea. We can't cross. And he's going to say, who, who commands the winds and waves to obey him? See, God leads us on purpose where he can show us who he is. Now, verse 18 is a very confusing verse, and I read it, and maybe you were already confused. Wait, if they weren't ready for the Philistines, then why does verse 18 say that they are equipped for battle? And here's the short answer, because it's a very poor translation, is the, is the short answer. The Hebrew word Hamas means groups of 50. So the NIV and the ESV, unfortunately, really missed this one. This isn't just my opinion. I'll read Hebrew scholar Douglas Stewart, who puts it very bluntly. He writes, the NIV translation is not correct. The Hebrew actually reads, the Israelites went up out of the land organized by 50s. Philip Ryken similarly writes, they were not armed for battle as the NIV translates it. The verse says they simply left in formations of 50s. In fact, if we keep reading in Exodus, we find out they have no weapons at all. The first time they carry short swords is Exodus 32. 
This is about two million people with cattle and nothing else. They're not trained for battle. They have no martial arts background. Here they are, and they're helpless. So what the text is actually telling us is that they were in formation, not that they were graduates of boot camp. These are not people equipped for victory. That is, in fact, the entire point. But as the Exodus has shown us already, there is someone who is able. And now verse 19 shows us how the Lord works even beyond our lives. Look in verse 19. I love this. Moses took the bones of Joseph with him. Do you remember this from the end of Genesis? For Joseph had made the sons of Israel solemnly swear, saying, God will surely visit you, and you shall carry up my bones with you from here. Genesis ends incredibly. It begins with creation. It ends with Joseph in a coffin. But before Joseph dies, he is confident God is going to keep that promise he made to Abraham, and he's going to bring his descendants to the promised land, and that there will be descendants to bring them there. Joseph is convinced that God still works even after we stop working, which is such encouragement. Did you know, brother or sister, God does not stop working when you do. Very often I meet with people who are near the end of life, and they're so concerned about what's going to happen after I'm gone. Can I remind you to learn from the heart of Joseph? God knows how to finish things even when you're not involved anymore. God knows how to finish the promise that he originally made. And he knows how to do it through faithful generations that will be there. Be encouraged by that truth. When you feel like you can't have a hand to steer it, remember there's a providential hand who will finish what he started. And in fact, he won't leave us on the journey. So now look in verses 20 through 22. The Lord leads his people. He's ever present with us. They moved on from Succoth and it camped at Etham on the edge of the wilderness. And the Lord went before them by day in a pillar of cloud to lead them along the way. And by night in a pillar of fire to give them light that they might travel by day and by night. The pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night, notice, did not depart from before the people. Is that not Hebrews 13 verse 5? I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. Now you could think, well, Josh, that sounds great, but I don't have a pillar of cloud or smoke as a GPS from God, you know? But don't you know what we have is actually much better? What happened at Pentecost? What was above everybody's heads? Was it not a pillar of fire? <laughs> the, the Bible actually goes on to say this in 1 Peter 4. The spirit of glory and God now rest in you. 1 Peter 4, 14. If you've ever felt like, man, I wish God would just show me where to go. I have good news. He's in us now. <laughs> That's how he works now. Now the cloud of glory... Is Christ in you, the hope of glory? The Lord leads his people, number one. He chooses the best path, even if we don't know it's the best path. He finishes his promises even after we're gone, and he never leaves us or forsakes us. But now that leads us to number two. Number one was the Lord leads his people. Now number two, the Lord fights for his people. Look in Exodus 14. We begin in verse 1. Then the Lord said to Moses, tell the people of Israel to turn back and encamp in front of Pi-Hahiroth between Migdal and the sea 
in front of Baal Zephon. So now he's moving them again. God is purposely putting them in this position. You shall encamp facing it by the sea. God is moving them for his glory, and that will include judging their opposers. Verse 3, for Pharaoh will save the people of Israel. They're wandering in the land. The wilderness has shut them in. And I will harden Pharaoh's heart. And he will pursue them. And I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his host. And the Egyptians shall know, I am the Lord. And they did so. Throughout Exodus, God has said clearly, he's doing what he's doing so that people will know who he is, that he is the Lord, and so that his name will be glorified. The word glory could be confusing. I like this definition by Jim Hamilton. He defines glory this way. The glory of God is the weight of the majestic goodness of God. The glory of God is the weight of the majestic goodness of God. And the resulting name and reputation God gains from revealing who he is, creator, sustainer, judge, redeemer. So when you think glory, think God's weight and God's worth. And God reveals those things so that we will trust him. Now God has purposely put them at the edge of the Red Sea, hemmed in by the wilderness and chariots, so that he can reveal his glory for our good. Now, his glory becomes our good when we trust in him, but his glory becomes our judgment if we reject him. So look in verse 5. This is what happens when we rebuff the glory of God. Verse 5, when the king of Egypt was told that the people had fled, the mind of Pharaoh and his servants changed toward the people. And they said, what is this that we have done, that we have let Israel go from serving us. Remember that 600,000 adult males that made up their economy, and they've just let all of them go. And now Pharaoh has a change of heart and says, I think I want them back. There is a lesson for us here. Each week we've talked about the difference between remorse and repentance. One pastor said it this way, the difference between remorse and repentance is revealed after you say, I'm sorry. There's a lot of wisdom in that. Everybody says they're sorry. Second Corinthians 7 says there's worldly sorrow and there's godly sorrow. But which one leads to divinely enabled change? Obviously, Pharaoh here is not truly sorry. Verse 6, so he made his chariot and took his army with him. And took 600 chosen chariots, the tanks of their day, all the other chariots of Egypt with officers all over them. And the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, because he's going to get glory. And Pharaoh pursued the people of Israel while the people of Israel were going out defiantly. Pharaoh now is judged and solidified in his rebellion. And the opportunity for God's glory is made plain. Verse 9, the Egyptians pursued them. All Pharaoh's horses and chariots and his horsemen and his army and overtook them encamped at the sea. But now we come to what I believe is the crux of the passage. Exodus 14, verses 10 through 14, really deal with the lesson for you and I. What do we do when we feel powerless? Verse 10. When Pharaoh drew near, the people of Israel lifted up their eyes, and behold, the Egyptians were marching after them, and they feared greatly. And who wouldn't? That's a massive army, and you don't even have a small sword. 
And the people of Israel cried out to the Lord, which sounds like a good thing to cry out in prayer, but notice what the content of what they say. Verse 11, they said to Moses, is it because there are no graves in Egypt that you've taken us away to die in the wilderness? What have you done to us in bringing us out of Egypt? Is not this what we said to you in Egypt? Leave us alone that we may serve the Egyptians, for it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness." Obviously, then, the cry that they are giving is not one of faith. Instead, they are simply panicking because they realize that they are powerless. Now, they do something that might be easy to scoff at. They say, we wish we were slaves again. But have we not been guilty of the same? When the present seems unbearable, you can start to rewrite the past as pleasurable. I know I've done that. Something's very difficult, and then I start to say, man, but, you know... Ten years ago, things were so much easier for me, and that's where I need Google Drive to show me real pictures (laughs) of what it was like, because it wasn't as good as I'm remembering it. Now, the change of Moses is remarkable. Remember, the first time they complained to him, he quits. He's a different man now that he's in his 80s. He's patient and long-suffering. Look what he says in verse 13. Then Moses said to the people, fear not, stand firm. See the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall never see again. The Lord will fight for you. You have only to be silent. These are the key verses that I'd encourage you to meditate on them more this week. We're going to pause on them now. They actually work in a chiasm. That's where you have two things that mirror each other and then two things in the middle that mirror each other. The two things that mirror each other first are what we are supposed to do. What did you see that we're supposed to do? What is man supposed to do? Man is to not fear, to stand firm, and to watch. And then look at the end of verse 14. Man is to be silent. Does it sound like we're bringing a lot to the table? We're not. (laughs) We're not. Man's job is to watch what we cannot do be done by someone who can do it. We're to move from our powerlessness to someone who is all-powerful. Look at what it says the Lord does. The Lord works salvation. The Lord fights for you. The Lord is the one from whom salvation comes. I've really focused on these verbs, so I translated them. Let me say a little bit more about them. They're imperfect verbs. That means you need to make a resolution and then see its ongoing implications. Something more actually happens about these verbs. They're active verbs. The one that says do not fear is a cal active. The one that says take your stand is hithpael intensive active. And the one that says be silent is hithpael causative active. Why did I give you those Hebrew definitions? Just so that you know, these are all verbs that require you to engage. Now, you might be thinking, wait, I don't get it. If the text says be silent, why does it take effort to be silent? But don't we know the answer to that? Is it actually easy or hard to do nothing and trust God? Charles Spurgeon said, I dare say you'll think it's an easy thing to stand still, but it's one of the postures that a Christian soldier does not learn without years of training. I find that marching and quick marching are much easier than standing still. It is perhaps the first thing we learn in the drill of the human armies, but it is the most difficult to learn under the captain of our salvation. The apostle hints at this in Ephesians 6 when he writes, Stand fast, and having done all, stand. 
Do you know what passage that is, Ephesians 6? It's when we put on the whole armor of God. And with the armor of God on, now that you have a sword, what does he tell you to do? Stand still. Isn't that interesting? Here what he tells the Israelites to do is actually your job is to stand still and watch God do what only God can do. Do you know why it's so hard for us to stand still? Because we don't like feeling powerless. And faith requires you to lean into the fact that you're powerless. You have to lean in even further to how vulnerable you are. But that's when God works. When we say, no, salvation is of the Lord. I also think we miss this because we've started to believe Christianity is something you do. Remember when the rich man came to Jesus, the rich young ruler, and he said, Lord, what must I do so that I can inherit eternal life? And remember, Jesus showed him rather clearly, here, here's something, can you do that? No, exactly. There's nothing you can do. There's nothing you can do. That's how salvation has always been. It's entirely of the Lord. Even with the armor of the Lord on, we stand firm. So I want to encourage you this morning. Number one, the Lord leads. Number two, the Lord fights. So learn to lean into the Lord's power. But now number three, the Lord saves for his glory. Again, we'll read that the Lord hardens. But now look in verse 15. The Lord said to Moses, why do you cry to me? Tell the people of Israel to go forward. This verse is so interesting to me. The Lord is telling them to stop praying. I don't think I've ever seen anywhere else in the Bible where the Lord tells them that. And the Lord is singling out Moses. I don't think he's picking on him. Moses is representing the people. The people are crying. The people are powerless. Now the Lord says, okay, move forward. What, what does that mean? What is the Lord doing there? I think he's reminding us that when we realize we're powerless and that only the Lord can fight the battle, we still take the next step in faith. Haven't you ever known exactly what God wanted you to do, but you just didn't want to take the next step? See, God has revealed to them, I'm going to lead you out. I'm going to take you there. I'm going to give you the power. So now the way you show that you trust me is you take the next step. Verse 16, lift up your staff, stretch out your hand over the sea and divide it that the people of Israel may go through the sea on dry ground. Verse 17, I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians so that they shall go in after them. I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his hosts, his chariots and his horsemen. And then the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I have gotten glory over Pharaoh, his chariots and his horsemen. Here we are in the same chapter, chapter 14. God has twice repeated that he will get glory over Pharaoh. So why is this so important and how should we think about it? Does it perhaps rub you the wrong way that God is committed to his own glory? Maybe in your heart you wouldn't say this out loud, but that sounds almost self-serving or that that's not actually a gracious thing to do. But think about it this way. If God was not going to seek his own glory, what possible higher end could he seek? What, what is worthy of worship beyond God? What is worthy of praise? What is worthy of honor and blessing forever and ever other than God. In fact, would not God commit idolatry if he prioritized anything above his own name? But second, lest you miss the connection, for God to be for God is actually the best news for us. 
God being for his glory means that what we most need, he most freely gives himself. This past week, I preached chapel and I preached through John 11. You know this chapter really well. This is Jesus and Lazarus. Remember how Jesus waits until Lazarus has been dead for four days. Why does he wait? He loves Lazarus. Lazarus is his friend. Who wants to see their friend suffer? Why does Jesus wait? He says in John 11, verse 4, so that God will be glorified and so that your faith will grow. God being for his glory is the best news for us. We know that God delivers because he's committed to show us that he's a deliverer. We know that we can trust God to save because he shows us his power over death through the tomb and here at the Red Sea. Now verse 19 of Exodus 14. Then the angel of God who was going before the host of Israel moved and went behind them and the pillar of the cloud moved from before them and stood behind them coming between the host of Egypt and the host of Israel. Now, throughout Exodus, you've noticed that God makes a division between him and those who trust in him and between those who do not. This week, my daughter was telling me that she's been struggling with division at school. And so I was trying to help her on the drive home. And I said, honey, well, on Monday, we have Halloween. And let's just try to make division really simple for you. If you have a bag of 100 pieces of candy and there are four of you kids at home and you divide it four ways, how much candy will your brothers get? And she said, none. <laughs> so that's great division. Very good. Very good. Very good. That's actually what happens throughout Exodus though, right? The, the division is you can trust God and you have everything that God gives or you can reject him and you get none. I mean, you get none. Don't miss that because in the Garden of Eden, when Adam and Eve sinned, they push away God. This is what sin always does. It pushes away God and his graces. This doesn't have to be our outcome, but it is the outcome for anyone who rejects the Lord. Verse 20 continues, There was cloud and darkness, and it lit up the night without one coming near the other all night. Now the Red Sea we know, but this one we tend not to think about. Isn't this an amazing evening? Here they are at the shores of the water, and the entire night they're vulnerable, and yet God puts a cloud so that the Egyptians can't find them. Praise God. Now verse 21. Then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea and the Lord drove the sea back by a strong east wind all night and made the sea dry land and the waters were divided and the people of Israel went into the midst of the sea on dry ground. The waters being a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. I really hate how liberal ministers have undercut the scriptures. And I read a true story. This is a true story. There was a liberal minister preaching in an old Bible-believing African-American church. This really happened. At a certain point in the sermon, the minister referenced the Red Sea. And one of the people in the back yelled out, praise the Lord, taking all them children through the deep waters. What a mighty miracle. Well, this was a liberal minister. So he condescendingly said this out loud. It was not a miracle. They were in marshland, and the tide was ebbing, and the children of Israel just picked their way across six inches of water. Well, a person halfway through the congregation yelled back, Praise the Lord, drowning all them Egyptians in six inches of water. (laughs) I love that. I love that. 
It is so sad that when we read the Bible, we forget how great God is. It tells us more about our own secularism that we reject what's so plain in the text. God can do anything. God can part the Red Sea, and that's exactly what he did. In fact, the Hebrew is clear. The word choma, which is translated wall, is only used in the Bible of a city wall. It's never used of a retaining wall or like a fence. Also, the word yom is only used for large bodies of water like oceans or sea. And even if you were to argue the height of the water, didn't you notice in the text the Israelites walked on dry ground? This is clearly a miracle because God works miracles. God sustains the natural order whenever he wants to. And we actually should be more amazed with what he does in the natural order. But when he suspends it, he especially makes clear who he is. Now look in verse 23. The Egyptians pursued and went in after them into the midst of the sea. All Pharaoh's horses, he has bet everything on this. His chariots and his horsemen. And in the morning watch, the Lord in the pillar of fire and of the cloud looked down on the Egyptian forces and threw the Egyptian forces in a panic. Clogging their chariot wheels so that they drove heavily. And the Egyptians said, let us flee from before Israel. Notice, for the Lord fights for them. Verse 26, then the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand over the sea and the water will come back upon the Egyptians, upon their chariots and upon their horsemen. So Moses stretched out his hand. The sea returned to its normal course when morning appeared. And as the Egyptians fled into it, the Lord threw the Egyptians into the midst of the sea. The waters returned and covered the chariots and the horsemen and of the host of Pharaoh that had followed them into the sea, not one of them remained. But the people of Israel walked on dry ground through the sea, the waters being a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. Let me remind you of something. The Israelites are not special. The Lord is gracious. The Israelites are not special because they've earned specialness. They're protected because they came through the blood of the Lamb. That's why anybody is preserved in the Red Sea. It's because they've already been covered by the blood. Verse 30. Thus the Lord saved Israel that day from the hand of the Egyptians. And Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. And Israel saw the great power that the Lord used against the Egyptians. So the people feared the Lord and they believed in the Lord and in his servant Moses. See, God has a pattern of taking us to a moment where we're powerless to show us that he brings mighty victory through apparent defeat. The clearest time where God brings mighty victory through apparent defeat is when the creator of the galaxies chooses to die in apparent defeat on Golgotha. When he of whom the rocks could have cried out, praise the Lord, was struck as the rock in judgment between criminals. When he who is the light of the world was crucified covered with a plague of darkness reserved for people like Pharaoh. But Jesus, who died in apparent defeat, also did not stay defeated. Though his disciples deserted and wept, we know what they found Sunday morning. The tomb rolled open. Jesus victorious. We who were dead in our trespasses and sins, forgiven because he has taken them and nailed them to the cross, moving them out of the way, triumphing over them through his resurrection. God has a pattern of taking apparent defeat 
and showing great victory. And God's salvation still exists for you now. God doesn't merely bring people through waters. He brings them through sin, brings them through death, and he brings the greatest escape of all through his son. In fact, what happened at the Red Sea is supposed to show us what happened at Calvary and at the tomb. But this morning you might object. You might say, Josh, you're reading that into the text. That's not really there. This is just a record of what God did. This isn't a record of what God does. But friend, that's not actually how the Scriptures treat it anywhere else. When you read the rest of the Bible, you don't ever read the people saying, man, Moses, he was a great guy. No, you read the Bible saying, God, what a great deliverer. In fact, actually biblically inspired authors apply this to their own personal struggles. In Psalm 77, the writer is lamenting struggles in his own life and struggles that he thinks maybe show that God is no longer for him. But do you know what he remembers that gives him confidence that God is for him and that God will do good things? He remembers the Red Sea. Let me read Psalm 77, verse 16. When the Red Sea saw you, O God, its waters looked and trembled. The sea quaked to its very depths. The clouds poured down rain. The thunder rumbled in the sky. Your arrows of lightning flashed. Your thunder roared from the whirlwind. The lightning lit up the world. The earth trembled and shook. Your road led through the sea, your pathway through the mighty waters, a pathway no one knew was there. And so Psalm 77 ends, and so, Lord, I trust you. So if you think it's just my opinion that the Red Sea is something for your faith today, it isn't. This is the way inspired scripture handles this event. It tells us we can still trust God who still does the same work today. God still saves and he saves alone for his own glory. The story of the Red Sea is well known, but the God behind it is less known. Composers like Handel, actors like Charleston Heston, animators like Charles Schultz and Walt Disney all wrote or talked about the Red Sea. But Bob Marley probably put it most memorably in the way our popular culture thinks about it. Here's what Marley's saying. Send us another brother Moses from across the Red Sea. Come to break down oppression, rule inequality, wipe away and set captives free. But what I would want Bob Marley to know is actually the hero that we need to ask for is not Moses. The hero we need to ask for is the Lord and his son, Jesus. See, Exodus is trying to let us know how great God is. Sadly, there are synagogues even in this city that open the book of Exodus and read it like we read the Revolutionary War history. Wasn't that interesting how we overcame our political oppressors? Wasn't that great how Moses was like a Thomas Jefferson, George Washington figure? No. God said in Exodus 6, why is he doing this? So that they will know he is the Lord. Exodus 7, why is he doing this? So that they will know he is the Lord. What do we see twice in Exodus 14? So that God will get glory. Do you know who the hero of Exodus is? The Lord. There is no other. Psalm 106 put it this way, Our fathers, when they were in Egypt, did not consider your wondrous works. They did not remember your steadfast love. They rebelled at the Red Sea. So what did God do? Psalm 106 verse 8, Yet you saved them for your name's sake, that you might make known your mighty power. The Exodus shows us there's a God you can still trust. 
There's a Lord who still saves, and He saves by His power alone. When you receive that, when you trust that, when you love the Lord, then your cup overflows with praise to Him. And so, you know what they did in Exodus 15? They sang. They got to the other side and they broke out in song. This song is such a good one that we read in Revelation 15, verse 3, people in heaven with harps still sing the song of Moses. Exodus 15 is a song. Dr. James Montgomery Boyce, in one of his last sermons, described music this way. Music is a gift from God that enables us to express our deepest heart response in meaningful and memorable ways. Music is when our hearts join with our minds to say yes, yes, yes to the truth we are embracing. Look at Exodus 15, verse 1. Then Moses and the people of Israel sang this song to the Lord. I will sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. And the horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea. The Lord is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. Let me give you a big reminder. The first was number one. The Lord is the hero of the story. Here's your second big application today. God works through the powerless by his power. God works through the powerless by his power. Let me quote D.L. Moody again. Moses spent 40 years in Pharaoh's court thinking he was a somebody. 40 years in the desert learning he was a nobody. But then 40 years showing what God can do with a somebody who found out he was a nobody. Praise God. Isn't that what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 12? I asked God to change this. I asked God to do this. But then God made clear to me that my strength is made perfect in your weakness. So when I am weak, then I am strong. So that the power of God might be manifest in me. But the final big application today, number three, God only saves those who trust in his deliverer. God only saves those who trust in the blood of the lamb. God does make a division. It's a little bit like my daughters. (laughs) Those who reject get none. So this morning, please don't take lightly your own soul. Come poor in spirit and receive all that God is. And this morning, remember, when you feel powerless and you wonder, is the Lord committed to me? Does the Lord love me? Is the Lord going to finish what he began? The Lord finishes the salvation he began. The Lord loves us eternally to the end. And the Lord will never abandon us. Salvation is of the Lord. Let's pray this morning. God, I thank you that everything that we need, you provide. And so as we read in Romans 1, we are to live from beginning to end by faith. From first to last. When Israel was in Egypt, you set apart Moses, a man who really did not have the abilities or aptitude, but a man that you would use for your glory. Then you worked mighty and powerful plagues, judging and ultimately working, even through Pharaoh and those who opposed you. But here the people of Israel have started to make their way out, and they are at the Red Sea, and they feel powerless, and they panic. And surely we can relate. So whatever's going on that causes us to realize that we're powerless, instead of leading us to panic, should lead us to praise.
Help us to call on the Lord who is able to do above and beyond what we could ask or think. Help us to remember that with man, yes, it is impossible, but with God, all things are possible. The arm of the Lord is never too short to save. Lord, I thank you for the blood of the Lamb. May we put our faith in Him, and may we realize that you will finish what you've started for your glory and for our good. In His name we pray. Amen. You've been listening to Josh Scally, pastor of Emanuel Baptist Church in Raleigh, North Carolina. For more information and free access to other messages, go to ebcraleigh.com. That's ebcraleigh.com.